1: I mentioned in the last episode that the fundamental problem in the Corinthian church was their uncritical acceptance of the attitudes, values, and behaviors of the society in which they lived, quote. In chapters two to four, Paul is addressing their worldly attitude with respect to human leadership. They're very tribal, and they have a tendency to over-identify with particular people as opposed to being rooted in and focused on the person of Christ. So in verses 1 to 4, Paul chides them for their immaturity. And then in the remainder of the chapter, he teaches positively about the true nature of human leadership within the church. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? It is worth noting here that the Apostle Paul considers these folks in Corinth to be Christians. He calls them brothers in verse 1. But it is also clear that he considers them to be baby Christians. He says in the second half of verse 1 that he could not address them as spiritual people because they are clearly still functioning as babes in Christ. And he's not happy about that, meaning he believes that they ought to have been much further along in their development than they actually are. And that's a helpful reminder to us. Christian growth is not automatic, and its rate cannot be easily predicted. There are a great many variables. C.K. Barrett says, for example here, Mere lapse of time does not bring Christian maturity. Closed quote. There are things that can work against Christian maturity, and there are things that can expedite Christian maturity. It is possible for growth to stall. It is possible for people to regress. And so Paul expresses a little bit of frustration here. By leaving the door of their minds so open to the influence and dictates of the culture, this church has stifled its own growth into the image and likeness of Christ. And so now they must shut that door and attend again to the ordinary means so as to restart the natural processes of Christian maturity. Because as of this moment, Paul says, they are acting almost as if they are not saved. Are you not being merely human when you grossly over-identify with the preachers and teachers that God sends into your midst? I see precious little evidence of the Spirit with respect to your attitude and approach to matters of leadership. That's the substance of Paul's pastoral rebuke. And now in verse 5 and following, he begins to provide some remedial teaching. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants And he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Like a good teacher here, Paul uses a variety of metaphors and illustrations in order to make his point. The first of those metaphors that we see here has to do with the imagery of gardening or farming. Paul says that pastors and leaders are really just seasonal laborers. They are assigned a section of the field, they do their work, and then they pass away. Therefore, it is foolish to over-identify with these migrant workers. We ought to identify with the one who gives the growth. Now, here we encounter an approach in Paul that we will observe all throughout the course of this letter. Very often, we find him deprioritizing as opposed to delegitimizing. There is a nuance and a subtlety to Paul's approach that many contemporary leaders in the church would do well to take note of. When it comes later to the matter of spiritual gifts, for example, we'll see Paul deprioritizing certain gifts, but not delegitimizing them. He will say that speaking in tongues is less important than the Corinthians seem to think, but he doesn't go all the way and forbid speaking in tongues outright, as many contemporary ministers and leaders have done. Paul understands the principle of balance and priority, Sometimes it isn't a matter of whether the thing should be in the car or not. Sometimes the issue is, should it be in the front seat, the back seat, or the trunk? At Corinth, speaking in tongues was in the front seat. It was in the driver's seat, actually. And Paul puts it in the trunk without throwing it right out of the vehicle. And we see him doing that same thing here with respect to leaders. He is not delegitimizing human leadership. He's he's not saying you don't need preachers or teachers or leaders. He's not saying that. He is deprioritizing human leadership. The Pillar New Testament commentary threads this needle very helpfully here when it says that ministers do have value, but when respect or fondness leads to an exclusive loyalty, and when this causes division or detracts from a proper theocentric or Christocentric orientation, Paul wishes to point out that only God who makes things grow is worthy of our undivided gratitude and adoration, closed quote. That is a very timely word for us to hear. As I've mentioned already, the evangelical church has become sinfully tribal in the last several decades. Now, partly this is due to our access to extraordinarily gifted preachers via podcasts and the internet, and partly this is due to our uncritical adoption of worldly models of leadership from the culture. But regardless of where it comes from, it has to be confronted and rebuked. Who is John MacArthur? Who is John Piper? Who is Shane Claiborne? Who is Greg Boyd? Migrant workers only. And it is foolish, it is infantile to over-identify with these merely human teachers. And it isn't just in the wider church that we tend to do this. We often do this inside our own local churches as well. As soon as you have multiple pastors on staff at a church, people today instinctively identify their favorite. I like the young, handsome one. I like the funny one. I like the knowledgeable one but who are these people? Merely servants through whom you believed. They're waiters. They bring you great things, but they themselves are nothing. God is everything. He is the source. He is the banquet. He is the owner. He is all, and all human leaders work for him. In verse 9, Paul transitions from one metaphor to another. He says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So you can see that transition. So now Paul's going to carry on the basic lesson about leadership by switching now to the imagery of architecture. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple." Now, it is possible that Paul is choosing his metaphors somewhat randomly. I imagine most people in that time and culture would have understood agricultural imagery and architectural imagery, but these people in Corinth would likely have had a particular connection with this second of Paul's metaphors. The city of Corinth was completely destroyed by fire in 146 B.C., And then 100 years later, it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in a more explicitly Roman style. And thus, the city of Corinth was full of buildings where you could see some of the old Greek remains, perhaps the stone foundation or the tile floor. And then on top of that, the new construction that had been added centuries later such people would have an instinctive understanding of what sort of building materials last and what sort crumble, disappear, and are destroyed in the fire. And so Paul seizes on that. The central idea is that Paul and the other apostles laid out the foundation of the church, which is Christ. Now here the language is very similar to what we see in Ephesians 2.20, where Paul talks about the household of God being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets christ jesus himself being the cornerstone so that's the foundation christ is the foundation the foundation is laid by the old testament prophets who anticipate christ and the new testament apostles who explicate christ and everything else must be built up from there a pastor or a preacher therefore is only doing useful and honorable work insofar as he is building upwards on that pattern and foundation. There is to be no subsequent innovation in terms of essence or message. There is only Christ and him crucified. If you're building up on that, Paul says, then you'll be rewarded. But if you are not building up on that, you will experience regret and loss on Judgment Day. Matthew Henry draws out the obvious application. He says, "...ministers of Christ should take great care that they do not build their own fancies or false reasonings on the foundation of divine revelation. What they preach should be the plain doctrine of their master or what is perfectly agreeable with it." Quote. Many pastors are building combustible cathedrals made of wood and hay upon the foundation of the gospel. They themselves may survive the Judgment Day, but their work will perish in the flames. Leon Morris reminds us, however, that it isn't only pastors and preachers who require the warning contained in this text. He says, Many commentators restrict the application of this passage to the work of teachers, and it surely has special reference to their work. But the words seem capable of more general application. And verses 16 to 17 certainly refer to a wider circle. It is true of every believer that he is building on the one foundation. Let him be careful how he builds, closed quote. That is well and usefully said. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. and You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Here, the apostle reminds us that we must reject the ways and wisdom of the world in order to grow in Christ. That applies generally to the entire scope of worldly wisdom, but of course, it has particular application to this issue of leadership and ministry within the church. When the church uncritically adopts the values and practices of the culture with respect to leadership, she stifles and strangles her own growth and fertility. I think it would be fair to say, that the uncritical adoption of leadership practices into the church from the world of business, politics, and entertainment that generally characterized the church growth movement of the 1980s and 1990s was a disaster from which we have yet to fully recover. Ministers my age grew up being told that we should use the language of the marketplace in our preaching and communication. We were told not to preach for more than 30 minutes because that was the length of the average sitcom on television. We were told to be hip, funny, relevant, and with it. We were told to be visionary leaders and to spend more time on our mission statements than our Lord's Day sermons. We were trained to be CEOs instead of stewards through whom you believed. And we are still recovering A great part of my own pastoral journey has been unlearning a great deal of what I was taught in my formative years. I'm not entirely sure that the process has reached its necessary conclusion. Many pastors today must become fools with respect to the wisdom of this world in order to ensure their usefulness and enduring legacy within the field and building of the Lord. And many churches, too, must unlearn A great deal of what we have been taught and allowed to do with respect to our over identification with particular leaders and charismatic preachers. We have settled for less than we ought to have done as God's people, for all things are ours. These leaders that God sends us, we don't belong to them, they belong to us. They are gifts that have been sent for our help and encouragement. They are intended to lead us farther in and further up into all that the Lord has in store for those who are in Christ. Thanks be to
0: God.